Well, everyone, it's great to see you. Good to have you here today. And um, what kind of a day is this? It's a great day, isn't it? God's doing great things in us today and through us. This is a day of victory and breakthrough. And I just declare that to you, and I encourage you to embrace that. Just embrace that and open your heart up to whatever victory, whatever breakthrough God has for you in your life today, because he has, has really good stuff here. Um, you know, a few, a few uh, weeks ago, I spoke at the Oxford Vineyard, and I mentioned that I was from Western Pennsylvania, and after the service, a guy came up to me, and he said, well, I'm from just north of Pittsburgh, and he said, honestly, he said, I thought I recognized a Western PA accent in you, or before you said that, and I, I thought, well, I kind of like left that behind, but... Uh, he, uh, he, he recognized it. it. It reminded me that when I taught fifth grade in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio, which was only 120 miles from where I grew up in western Pennsylvania, the kids there wanted to know if I was from England <laughs> because they all thought I talked funny. And, they, and, and so there, it's just that short distance, there was a cultural difference that we experienced. And um, the, the further away you go from home, the more cultural uh, differences you experience. In Guatemala, big difference there was how time is viewed. I mean, there's like 80, 90% overlap culturally, but they view relationship as far more important than being on time. And uh, we're, we're, we're supposed to be someplace at six o'clock. This is the first day there. And it took an, over an hour to get there, but we had to stop at the bank on the way the manager of the bank was the brother-in-law to the guy leading the team. And so he had to introduce us, each and every one, to his brother-in-law. And we had to stand in the parking lot for 45 minutes and talk. And we didn't get to leave. We're due there at 6. It's an hour and 15 minutes away. And we didn't get to leave until a quarter to 6. And so it's just, it was just a radically different mindset which I must say, as I experienced that over those couple of weeks, I think that's probably a lot more how Jesus lived than the way we live today, isn't it? I mean, the relationships should be a priority for us, and, and they're really not. But uh, the biggest cultural uh, gap I ever experienced was in Mozambique. And, uh, you know, good people, wonderful people, wonderful nation filled with, with people. But where we were, there, there was a high degree of fear of the demonic, and uh, th that gave the witch doctors incredible power over people, so much so that their fear of the demonic, demonic uh, their fear of ancestors coming back to, uh, you know, to haunt them, would override even the parental instinct to protect your children. Or, or the, in one case, a grandmother whose uh, daughter had come back to her in the night uh, after her daughter had died and said, send my, send my two-year-old son to me. And out of fear... She followed, she did that. And, and to that, that was just mind-boggling to me. How, how could that possibly be? And, and it, it, just in, in that, if, if that, nothing else, if there's no other difference, then it made me feel like just a complete, you know, completely out of it. Like, man, where do I, I come, I must come from another planet. If, if, I, if, I, if I disagree this much with this, it made me feel like, you know, maybe I was helicoptered in or dropped in from the future or something like that. And I just don't, you know, such a great difference in the cultural mindset. And I share all of that to say that Jesus came 
to release the future kingdom into the world today and have people that would live as citizens of the future kingdom. That we would overcome the, the indoctrination and training we've had in our culture and cultural values and that we would live according to the values of God's kingdom. And when we do that, it makes us different. It, it makes us different than the rest of culture. And oftentimes that's good. Sometimes it's not good. Because some, last week the message was on uh, believers becoming salt and light in the world. And some people like salt and some don't. Some people like light and some people would rather have darkness. And, and so it's... Um, but, but the point is, it's a difference. It's a different kind of person that Jesus wants us to be. Does that make sense? It's not like my life overlapped with my culture 90%, and then I add 10% of Jesus so I get blessed. Or, or expecting him, expecting this. My life overlaps with culture 95%, but the other 5% is me begging Jesus to bless me. But I'm living like the culture, not like the kingdom. And so Jesus wants to develop a group of people, a family that will live like people that have been dropped into this world from the future. Now this future age is not going to be fully released. It was there in the sense that Jesus' presence was there. He's the king. If you have the king, you have the kingdom. And so he's there, so the kingdom's there, but it's gonna be released globally when Jesus dies on the cross and is resurrected from the dead and then ultimately ascends back to the Father and pours the Holy Spirit out on the church on the day of Pentecost. So it's going to take that. It's going to take Jesus dying on the cross for the kingdom to be, to be implanted on this planet again and him resurrecting from the dead. But for now, what we see here in Matthew, Matthew 5, this Sermon on the Mount, for now, what Jesus is doing is teaching them about these kingdom values that they might not be able to fully grasp because they're not fully kingdomized people yet until after the resurrection and the ascension and the Holy Spirit comes. When you get a new kingdom heart, and with a new kingdom heart, then you can see the kingdom of God. You're born again, you can see the kingdom of God. At this point, um, he's teaching them, giving them teachings that would seem very radical. It would seem like crazy almost to their mindset. And, uh, and, and what Jesus wants them to know is that while the teaching he's giving them might seem radical to them, he himself is not a revolutionary. He, he himself is not one who's coming and saying, look, we just got to upend the past the past is filled with failure after failure after failure, and you know, let's just sweep aside the past, and let's move ahead in, into something, this new thing that God wants to do. It's, he's not rejecting the past, because God's been working in the past. And so he's not saying, listen, the Old Testament, that's, that's gone, that's passe, forget it. You know, it didn't, it didn't do its job, but we got to bring something new in, something revolutionary, radical, that's going to change everything. Now, he's going to do that, but he's going to build it upon God's past work, and he wants them to see that everything he's teaching is an extension of the past. And so he wants them to understand the true intent of the past, which they don't understand. There's so many things that were going on in this culture regarding the law of God and, and the prophets that they just couldn't comprehend. 
uh, what Jesus was saying in, in, in that respect. But he, he really wants them to understand that. So he wants them to understand that the future God promised through the prophets is here. And that doesn't mean a rejection of the past. That means I'm going to show you what the past really was intended for, and then we're going to move ahead into the fulfillment of all of it. So Matthew 5, 17 through 20, and uh, here in these verses, Jesus is preparing them for the next section of teaching in the, um, in the, um, par- in the um, Sermon on the Mount. And you know, things like this. He's going to say right after this, he's going to say, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. He said, what I want to tell you is the real intent of that was don't hold anger in your heart against your brother. It was a relational command. It wasn't a functional command. You can hate someone. You can beat them half to death as long as you don't kill them. I mean, if you took it that way. But Jesus is just saying, no, no, no. This was about the heart. And so Matthew 5, 17 to 20, let's read it together. Would you stand with me? And let's read it out loud. I'll lead. You follow along as I lead here, okay? All right, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Please be seated. All right, so we start with this first thought. Jesus says, do not think, really literally it means don't make the judgment. As you hear what I'm about to say, you know, don't make the judgment that I'm here to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And the word abolish is a word that means to break something apart and throw it away. Um, You know, let's say you have an old uh, dresser in your house and it's heavy, but it's so old and it's falling apart what I would do with that, rather than try to carry the whole thing out, out of the house, I'd get a small sledgehammer, I'd just break it up into pieces, and then just throw all the pieces away. That's what's being described here. He, he's saying, I'm not trying to pick the law apart and get rid of it. I'm not trying to abolish the law, but actually to fulfill it. To understand the law, we need to understand for the Jews, there would be three aspects to the law. The first aspect was the Ten Commandments. That's what would immediately come to someone's mind. And so the Ten Commandments um, in, contained within the Pentateuch itself, the first five books of the Bible, all of these are repeated in the New Testament except the law regarding the Sabbath. And even at that, the Sabbath principle is still alive and well today. And so the Ten Commandments would still be in effect today. Um, in their truest sense of what, how Jesus interprets as he continues to move on in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and really, the Ten Commandments were summarized by Jesus as what? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, body, strength, everything you are, and love, love your neighbor like yourself. 
I mean, we can't get past that. I mean, that, that is the thrust of the New Testament right there. And so the Ten Commandments um, in, in the New Testament are, are still a valid thing for us. Now, the second aspect of the law that the Jews would consider or think of would be the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, um, Genesis through Numbers. And is it Numbers or Deuteronomy? Ah. The first five books of the Bible, okay. So uh, in addition to the Ten Commandments, it gave instructions on social relationships and business relationships. It gave instructions on uh, religious duties, dietary law, and uh, as well as temple worship, ceremony, and sacrifices that they were to make in the temple. Now, when it comes to the social and business relations, they're still valid today as examples. You can look at those and you can say, well, if God was setting up a nation, he told people to treat each other this way and have this type of relationship with each other. So you can look at that as examples. But when it comes to the temple and uh, worship and sacrifices, Jesus doesn't abolish them. What he does is to fulfill them. And in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, here's what we read. It says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected all time, for all time, those who are sanctified. If you continue reading there, you see, therefore there's no need for continued sacrifice. You don't have to go make an animal sacrifice. Jesus made a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice that was sufficient for the past, for the present, and for the future. And so these ceremonial worship laws, sacrificial laws, he is declaring not that they are uh, not not that they are annulled, but that they're being fulfilled in him. He fulfills it, and in that respect, it is no longer um, applicable because he has fulfilled them all. In fact, in Hebrews, it also says that those all of those laws and regulations were like shadows of the reality. The reality was Christ. The shadow was the, the animal sacrifices and other temple acts of temple worship that they had to perform in the Old Testament. I mean, who wants the shadow when you have the reality? That would be like uh, your, your girlfriend comes and you say, oh, I don't need you. I've got the picture. I've got a picture of you. You know, just you can go, you can go home. No, you throw the picture away and you embrace the reality. And so Jesus is the reality. And so he, uh, he doesn't cancel, but he fulfills all of the Old Testament sacrificial laws. And then there was this. There was what's called scribal law. And the scribes were like lawyers of the day. And what they did was they took a legitimate law, and then they tried to break it down into its component parts. And what they wanted to do was um, they, they were looking for absolute certainty, so, for instance, they took the law on the Sabbath, and sa- which said you're not, you're not to work on the Sabbath. And uh, 
they look at that law and they say, well, all right, so what constitutes work? Let's come up with a definition for work. And so one of the definitions for work they came up with, with was carrying a burden. So then they said, all right, then what's a burden? And so then they came up with these definitions. A burden is food equal in weight to a dried fig. You get that? If you carry something that weighs more than a dried fig, if you carry a sandwich in your pocket, it better be a very, very small sandwich. Because if, if it weighs as much as a dried fig, according to the scribes, you are sinning. Other, other ways they defined it, enough milk for one swallow. If you have enough just to slosh around in your mouth, I guess it's okay, but if you have enough that you can actually swallow it, you're in trouble, you're a lawbreaker. Uh, enough ink to write two letters. Now, not two two-page letters, but two letters, like A and B. If you can write C also, you're in trouble if you have that much ink on you. That's, that constitutes sin. Another law they had, uh, enough water to moisten your eye. It's a sin. They even said this. They argued about this, but some of them believed that if you had an artificial limb, which I didn't even know they had artificial limbs in those days, but if you did, were you allowed to use it on the Sabbath because you'd be strapping that that, that piece of wood to your leg, and then every time you'd be lifting your leg, you'd be lifting that wood, and that would be work because you're carrying a burden. And so just on and on and on, thousands of little picky laws like this that they made, that then they said, everybody in the nation, if you're going to be righteous, you have to live by these laws. And so all of this, Jesus is definitely annulling. He is definitely saying... Listen, these were never valid from the beginning, and this is not God's intent for the law. In fact, in Matthew 15, the Pharisees and the scribes, and the reason they're connected a lot, even more than with the Sadducees, is that they got along really well. And you know, another little interesting thing is the scribes never wrote anything down. It was all passed down by memory from one generation to the next. And it wasn't until 200 years after Christ that a scribe sat down and wrote it all out. And it was like, an, it was like, a, like a dictionary filled, you know, filled with thousands of laws. And then others of that era tried to define what they meant by all these laws. And they wrote like an encyclopedia about it. And so... The, the, this was a weight to people. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, you put burdens on people, and people that want to enter the kingdom, you don't let them enter because of the burdens you place on them. And you yourselves can't even lift one part of that burden. And so here's what they said. They said to Jesus, why do your apostles not obey the tradition of the fathers when it comes to washing their hands before they eat? There were ritual washings and it was probably based on something like this, that there are certain foods you're not allowed to mix with other foods. And so they might be afraid that you might have a molecule from that other food on your hand. And if you mix that molecule of that other food with this food, and then you pick that food up, you would be breaking the law according to the, uh, the reasoning of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so they had these hand washings you had to go through. Here's what Jesus said to them. Jesus called the crowd to him, and he said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. 
So they're saying, man, they're not washing their hands. They might be, they might be consuming something that's impure. How do they know? And Jesus said, look, you guys got this all wrong. It's the heart that is the issue, not what goes into your mouth. It's what comes out because it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks, Jesus says, in another place. And so in this, Jesus was definitely nullifying all of those thousands of additional laws that the scribes and Pharisees came up with. But verse 18, he says this. He says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest stroke not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so Jesus is validating the Old Testament as Scripture and Revelation Scripture up to that point in time. He is validating it as the legitimate Word of God. But when he says, until heaven and earth pass away, then later he says, until all is accomplished, those two phrases could be in conflict with each other. Because how is all going to be accomplished if it's valid until heaven and earth pass away? It meaning that it, nothing's going to be accomplished between now and then that would put the law in a different light. But what, what, what you need to understand is heaven and earth passing away is like a saying. It is, it's a figure of speech that would be the same as saying when pigs fly. You know, uh, when's this going to be invalidated? Well, when pigs fly. What he's, he's just saying, making an, an emphatic statement that the Word of God is true and right and, and valid. But then he does say this, that it's not going to pass away until all is accomplished. And that phrase is what we would call an eschatological phrase. And what that means is, eschatology is the study of end times. And so it means the coming age. He says, when the coming age enters in, then something's going to change. Then all these laws are going to change when the coming age enters. And what they didn't understand was that Jesus brought the coming age in his person. And as I've already shared, the age to come is about to break in and be established permanently on this planet. The thing they didn't grasp was that the current evil age would continue on. And something to understand about the kingdom when Jesus returns, he is not going to bring more of the kingdom than is here already. The kingdom is here right now. What he is going to do is eliminate the resistance to the kingdom. He will end this present evil age. Satan and all of the hordes of demons that bring deception and lies and temptation will be done away with. And the only people that go into this kingdom are going to be those that actually know Jesus. And so it's not like Jesus is going to come back with greater power. It is he's going to eliminate the resistance when he comes back and allow the kingdom that's already here to flourish without any resistance at all. And so this kingdom has come. And so the law had a purpose prior to Jesus coming. And it still has a purpose after he has come. It fulfilled the purpose prior to his coming. And it is still currently fulfilling the purpose it had after he has come. And here's, here's how I explain that. Um, the law, first of all, provided a solid basis to start a nation. It, it provided a solid basis for the character of the nation of Israel. What, na what Israel was going to be like as a nation, just civil law. 
The second thing is this. It gave a picture of true righteousness in understanding God's holiness and righteousness. It pointed to his holiness. It pointed to his righteousness. And the third thing, and in doing that, it created an atmosphere and a kind of like a knowing in, in the sense of this, that when the Messiah comes, he would be recognizable because they would have some understanding of what righteousness really was. And they'd be able to look at him and say, oh, that's what this is talking about. He's, he's the only one that has ever lived righteously, and they can recognize him when he comes. But the third thing is after his coming, the law now doesn't make us righteous. It never, never could make righteous. Even, even in the Old Testament, it could not make people righteous. But what the law does now is to show us our need, which was part of its goal in the Old Testament as well. It shows us our need because none of us can measure up to the law. And so Paul, the apostle Paul said, I would not know I had sinned unless it was for the law. He said, when the law came in, I became a sinner, meaning in his own mind. When I really saw the law, that, that, broke, that broke my pride, and I recognized that I needed something outside myself. And so uh, that's affirmed in Galatians 3.24, where it says, therefore the law, Galatians 3.24, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And by sons of God, that's positional. It's not, um, it, it, it is not um, um, gender-based. It's like, like fully-fledged children of God is what he's saying. And so he's saying now, for those who know Christ, the law has served its purpose for us, but now the New Testament and what law is revealed there, Jesus does tell us things we're to do and not to do, but it's not law in the sense of making us righteous, it's law, or, or, or setting just simply the standard of righteousness, it's law in the sense of showing us how to live with a new heart. And so... Um, Verse 19, he says, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, to annul again, it means to explain away this time. The word is different than the word abolish earlier. It means to explain it away, to invalidate it, to set it aside. And so how do you do that? Well, one way you can explain it away is by finding exceptions. You find exceptions. In fact, Jesus, um, in, in one place where uh, he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees, he points out to them that they have violated the very law they are pl- claiming uh, they uphold. And in that passage, he said this. He answered and said to them, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that I would have helped you with has been given to God, he is not, he is not honoring his father or his mother. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition." And so what they did was they reasoned somehow in their minds that if they took a portion of money and they said, well, this is the money I would have helped my parents with, but instead I'm going to give it to God, that then they didn't have to help their parents. 
and they could they could uh, you know kind of like have that money double used one on the one hand that would have been set aside for their parents but instead it's given to God and he says there you have invalidated the very law you're trying to uphold and so you can invalidate the law by finding exceptions and rationalizations and you know like God knows my heart for this and so it doesn't make any difference if I go ahead and engage in this sin because I can be forgiven and Jesus knows my heart anyway and it's only the heart that counts if you do that, then that means your heart's not right. And so he's saying, don't invalidate the word of God by coming up with rationalizations. Second way would be only believing the parts you want to believe and the parts that are convenient for you to believe and obey. Third way would be adding to it like the Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees. And I think this is something we have to be careful of today because in Christianity over the years, there have been a lot of illustrations of adding to the scripture. And one simple thing would be this, uh, drunkenness. You know, drunkenness is a sin. But if we're gonna reason like the scribes did, then we would say, well, what is drunkenness? How do you know when you're drunk? What if, what if is it one drink, two drinks, three drinks? And at what point would you actually say you're drunk? So what we're gonna say is this, drinking itself is sin. Drinking wine with alcohol in it is sin. And the church has done that in the past. And, and that, that was using this type of reasoning where we're trying to come up with too great of a definition for something rather than just saying, okay, you have the Holy Spirit in you. You have a new heart. Um, we're gonna trust that you can figure that out. And if you can't, then hopefully you have a brother or sister in Christ close enough to you that's gonna come up to you and say, hey, I think you're drinking too much. I think you are. And if they do that, then, then with a good heart, you're going to listen to them. You're going to respond rather than making rules about it. And so other rules like um, give your best to God. So that means you have to dress up for church. You can't, you can't come in blue jeans and a t-shirt. That would, not be dis, that would be dishonoring to God. To that, I would say, if you want to dress up for church, great. That's awesome. Come, dress up. We love it. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you can put that on everybody else in the building. We can't make that a rule because when we make that a rule, then we're extending beyond what, you know, the principle of give your best to God. And so I had a young guy one time that was in my church, my very first church, and uh, he said, listen, he said, pastor, he said, my former pastor told me that I wasn't allowed to wear blue jeans. He said, why don't you tell me what I'm allowed to wear and tell me what TV shows I'm allowed to watch? Because he told us what shows to watch too. And I said, Eddie, I said, if I tell you that, then do you have to grow? Do you have to wrestle with God about anything? I said, you know, I, you, you know Jesus. I trust that you are gonna wrestle with God and decide if it's okay to wear blue jeans or not, okay? And so we have to be careful that we don't uh, begin to think that way like the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and again, I think it's fine for any one of us to say, hey, here's the standard I'm setting for myself. In my heart, in my conscience, I'm gonna do this, but we can't extend that to others. Then it becomes legalism. But verse 20, he goes on to say, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus was saying there is, if you're gonna base everything on law, then you're all in trouble. 
because the scribes and the Pharisees were the ones who would be, have been viewed as the most pious, law-abiding people in the whole land. And if you have, and, and the word here surpasses, it means far surpasses. It doesn't mean just you squeak out a victory by one point. You get a win by like 20 points. And, but no one can even live up to what they are, let alone far surpassing them. And so what, what he's really setting them up for here is to understand it's, it's by grace. The, the only way you can have righteousness that surpasses the righteousness or the false righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes is by grace. And God gives it to us by faith. And this is the childlike heart, the childlike approach to the kingdom where I'm not trying to figure it all out. I just see God's word says this, Romans 1, 16, it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness, or a righteousness, or for in it righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. You get righteous by faith because Jesus did what we couldn't do. He perfectly fulfilled the law, and then he died as a perfect sacrifice for us so that we could come to know him and receive new hearts. And it's those new hearts that we receive that then are our are, are connecting point with God and lead us into intimacy and relationship with God. And I want to ask the worship team to make their way out right now because we're going to end the service today with another worship song, a great one. It's called The Simple Gospel. And the... The Pharisees and the scribes just cluttered the gospel with rules and laws and burdens that nobody could ever, ever could live up to, which made it not good news. It wasn't good news anymore. But when we come at it like Jesus, with simple childlike faith, and we say, Jesus died, if I put faith in him, he gives me his righteousness, and in that, he gives me a new heart so that my heart itself becomes righteous and right with God. And so you have on the one hand the religion of the Pharisees, all rules-based. It was all about self. It was all about where do I rank. And, but then you have Jesus who says, no, this is all about relationship. So get rid of the religion and embrace the relationship, which comes by faith. Now, I'm going to ask you to stand with me, please. And I want to ask the prayer team, if you would, please, make your way down to the front to worship today, because at the end of the song, I'm going to come up and invite people for prayer, and I don't want to have a long gap waiting for that. So if you're on the prayer team this morning, as this song starts, just please make your way down to the front uh, for prayer. I know. 
thankful that you've called us into your family and babies don't or they they don't earn being born they're just born thank you for that thank you that the gospel is simple in the sense of just receiving Jesus putting faith in you our prayer teams are going to be here at the front and, and I want to say this if you're here and if you're realizing that Maybe you're thinking to yourself that you evaluate how close you are to God based upon how well you did that day or the day before. And on days where you feel like you did really well, you feel closer to God. I I think we want to change that for you. We want to pray for freedom from that, that, that your closeness to God doesn't rely upon you obeying a set of rules it relies upon yielding your heart just to Jesus. And any that, any that are here that you've had words of shame spoken over you in the past, words that say you're not good enough, you don't measure up, uh, we want to break that off you. And listen, you have to have someone else pray for you to get free of that. It's not enough for you just to say to God yourself. I mean, God can do that, but generally speaking, You need someone to pray for you to break that off your life so you can be free of that. 
So for any other needs you have, healing issues or anything else you're facing in life, we'd love to pray for you. You can make your way down now. And um, Father, thank you again. You're good. You're merciful. You're gracious and kind. And we come to you without fear. We come to you freely in relationship. Jesus, thank you. Amen. We'll see you next week.